how do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 471st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're doing a topic that we actually did a bonus cast years ago on, but I wanted to bring it out into the main feed because it's such an interesting and compelling story. We're going to be talking about Flight 401. This was an Eastern Airlines flight that went down right near us here in the Everglades in Florida. And the haunting that is connected to this is so compelling that the airline industry was discussing this openly out in the public, which is something you wouldn't think would be going on, especially this happened back in the 70s. Right. It definitely wasn't the type of discussion that a major corporation would be having at the time. Exactly. Before we get into sharing the history behind this flight and the haunting that is connected to it, we want to welcome into the Spectacular crew, Josephine and Linda. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. Some of us may be fearful of frogs. I, for one, have always loved them and have spent a good portion of time outdoors in search of them. I was always especially happy as a child to find congregations of tadpoles so that I may bring some home to watch their metamorphosis into full-sized frogs. Finding frogs in nature, however, can sometimes prove to be challenging. To this day, my favorite species of frog that I've witnessed in nature has to be the glass frog. These can be especially difficult to see due to their transparent nature. These fantastic, fragile frogs tend to sleep attached to leaves. With their eyes closed, they're quite imperceptible, as they camouflage so incredibly well. What is so unique about these translucent amphibians is their body's ability to control their red blood cells. While they are sleeping, their blood is sent into their liver, swelling it to twice the size. This renders their bodies virtually invisible, keeping them safe when sleeping. 
Many creatures have unusual adaptations to ensure their survival, but being able to control the flow of blood certainly is odd. Scared yet? Boo! <laughs> and now this month in history. month of January on the 15th in 2009, Captain Chelsea Burnett Sullenberger III safely lands a commercial airliner on New York City's Hudson River. This was U.S. Airways Flight 1549, and it had just taken off from New York's LaGuardia Airport when it hit a flock of geese. Both engines lost power, and when Captain Sullenberger told air traffic controllers what had happened, they directed him to land at nearby Teterboro Airport. He replied back that he would be unable to reach any runway and that, as a matter of fact, they were going to be plunging into the Hudson. He then informed the crew and passengers to prepare for impact and maneuvered the Airbus A320 onto the surface of the Hudson as gently as he could. Flight attendants then got passengers in life vests and out onto the wings of the plane as it floated on the surface of the water. Sightseeing boats, ferries, and rescue vehicles all converged on the scene and everyone was rescued with no lives lost. This has been dubbed the Miracle on the Hudson, and Captain Sullenberger went on to receive numerous honors and was invited to President Barack Obama's presidential inauguration. In December of 1972, the second deadliest single plane crash at the time occurred in Florida. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 had taken off from New York and was heading to Miami. The crew became distracted as the plane neared Miami and the flight went down in the Everglades. Miraculously, not everyone on board was killed. The plane was not a total loss and pieces of it were salvaged and used on other planes. And that is when the legend of Flight 401 began. It seems that a spirit attached itself to those pieces and people started reporting unexplained phenomenon. desire to fly goes back to the beginning of human history. One of the earlier myths that reveals this desire is the Greek tale recorded by Roman poet Ovid in his work Metamorphosis about Daedalus and Icarus. Daedalus was an inventor and he believed that he could make wings just like those of birds. He used feathers and wax to create the wings. This was not only just to fulfill a desire to fly, but he and his son Icarus were being held captive by King Minos in Crete. The wings would bring escape. So father and son strapped on those wings, but before leaving the ground, Daedalus warned his son that if he got too close to the sun, the wax on the feathers would melt. The men were successful in becoming airborne, but Icarus didn't listen to his father and he flew too close to the sun 
and his wings fell apart, and he fell to his death. This myth reminds us that any of us can fall from the sky, and sometimes planes do crash to the ground. Leonardo da Vinci was making designs of flying apparatuses in 1485, and one of these inventive drawings inspired the helicopter. The hot air balloon was created and gave humans the first taste of sustained presence in the sky. That first balloon was created in 1783 by Joseph and Jacques Montgolfier, and after a test with animals, they started sending men up. A man named George Cayley designed a glider in 1799, and he spent 50 years making improvements to various gliders. German engineer Otto Lilienthal furthered the testing with gliders, conducting 2,500 of his own flights before he died on the final one. In 1891, Samuel P. Langley added a steam-powered engine to a glider. He was awarded $50,000 to build a bigger model called the Aerodrome, but it proved too heavy to fly. The first successful airplane was invented by Orville and Wilbur Wright. They made their first sustained power flight on December 17, 1903, near Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. It took the brothers four years to reach this breakthrough. The brothers continued to work on flying machines and founded their Wright Company in 1909. French engineering pioneers started developing stick-and-rudder cockpit control systems, and one of them, Louis Blériot, flew a monoplane across the English Channel. This began a period of incredible innovation with a lot of focus on military aviation up until World War I. After the war, European entrepreneurs started looking at turning flying towards passenger travel. Charles Lindbergh made his historic nonstop solo flight from New York to Paris in 1927, proving that transatlantic flight was possible. Each accomplishment in aeronautics brought better engine design. The first passenger airline service took off in 1914. And as they say, the rest is history with airline travel now being just a regular routine. Many airlines have come and gone through the years. One of those airlines was Eastern Airlines. Eastern Airlines was one of the big four domestic airlines that was created in 1930 and ran under Eddie Rickenbacker, who had been a World War I flying ace. It specialized in flight from Florida to New York from the 1930s through the 1950s. Eastern was headquartered at Miami International Airport and ran operations until 1991. So a lot of our younger listeners have probably never heard of Eastern Airlines. Probably not. It hasn't even been around <laughs> in their lifetimes. Most people have probably heard of Lockheed. They were known, especially back in the 70s and before that, for their innovations when it came to military aircraft. But they decided to stick their toes into passenger aircraft, and they would develop one passenger airliner. And this was the L-1011. This was a plane that was ahead of its time. It was sleek and spacious on the inside, so people loved riding inside of it. And pilots loved flying it because it had a highly advanced autopilot system. Back in the day, if it was really foggy, Kelly, they couldn't land a plane at an airport. They'd have to divert somewhere else. Whereas today now, we're all used to, it doesn't matter what the weather's like, they can get that plane in anywhere. But at the time, having this ability back in the 70s was amazing. This plane, the L-1011, was considered an engineering triumph, but it was a commercial failure because they had so many lawsuits and all this other stuff that came up against it, and it was so expensive to make it. It just, it didn't work. Eastern Airlines really liked this model, and a Lockheed L-1011 TriStar had been delivered to them in August of 1972. Eastern called their fleet of L-1011s Whisperliners, and they were top-of-the-line aircrafts. They were huge. They were able to hold 400 passengers if configured for maximum occupancy. 
The planes measured longer than the entire length of the Wright brothers' first flight. Can you imagine? So we're here talking about the history. Oh, my goodness. And we're like, the Wright brothers have the first successful airplane. And the distance that it went on that little field, which wasn't real far, is how big this plane is. (laughs) Can you imagine if you would have told those brothers back then about this? An elevator led down to the kitchen. So imagine that. You have an elevator on this plane. Wow. And it goes down to the kitchen. There was a padded bar that was at the back of the plane, too. Now, I do remember back in the day when I was a kid, United had these pubs and you would go upstairs to a pub that was up on the top of the plane. So it was like right above the cockpit. You could see there was like this bump on the plane and the the pub was up there. And I remember going up there and getting a Coke and having some peanuts. (laughs) Goodness. That's why I think nowadays, not only is it just a pain in the butt when you're going through the airport and you got to practically undress yourself, but it's just not fun to fly anymore. It used to be fun when I was a kid. So this plane is what I would have called fun. The truth about these L-1011s is that they were plagued with issues and many of them were constantly being moved out of service for maintenance. It's the same way with all tech out there, Kelly. I mean, the more technology we get, the harder it is to fix things, the more it needs to be fixed. I think everybody can attest to the fact that refrigerators used to last forever years ago. And now you're lucky if you can go three years before you got to call an engineer to come out and they still can't fix the darn thing and you usually have to buy a new one. Very true. Or high-tech washing machines, dryers, ovens, everything that has all these digital controls that make it quote-unquote luxurious tend to screw things up too. Exactly. This particular aircraft that we're going to be talking about here, which becomes Flight 401, had been in use for four months without many problems when it was scheduled to travel from John F. Kennedy Airport in Queens, New York to Miami International Airport in Miami, Florida, and it would be doing that as Flight 401. The flight left New York at 9.20 p.m. with 163 passengers and 13 crew members. The crew included 10 female flight attendants, Captain Robert Albin Loft, First Officer Albert John Stockstill, and Flight Engineer Donald Lewis Repo. The cockpit crew was very experienced, and the captain had logged 29,700 flights, 280 of them in the L-1011. The First Officer had even more flight time in the aircraft. The winter night was chilly but clear. Engineer Repo had done a pre-flight check and everything seemed to be working properly. The flight would be uneventful and things were still going smoothly as the flight began its descent into Miami. Captain Loft came over the intercom to welcome everyone to Miami and let them know the temperatures were in the 70s, even though it was the middle of the night. And that's why we love Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. Now, I want to wind back just a little bit. Before this flight takes off from New York with this crew, they had to come in from somewhere else. You know, Kelly, when we're waiting for a flight and you get delayed, it's usually because the flight that was supposed to be coming in to go somewhere else is delayed. So planes are always coming and going from somewhere. This plane had actually arrived from Tampa and Captain Loft was the one who'd been flying it. And I want to share this passage from The Ghost of Flight 401, which was written by John G. Fuller back in 1976. The cockpit crew would arrive at JFK from Tampa shortly after 7.30 p.m., a comfortable enough time to prepare for taking Flight 401 back to Miami at 9 with its holiday passengers. A new crew of 10 stewardesses would meet them at Kennedy to handle the cabins, replacing the cabin crew that accompanied Captain Loft on the flight from Tampa. One of the stewardesses on Loft's flight from Tampa was named Doris Elliott, and that's not really her real name. She was a slim, attractive brunette, high-spirited, and sensitive. 
And when we say sensitive, I think we're talking sensitive to spiritual stuff. Some two weeks earlier, she'd been working on a flight from JFK to Orlando when she was hit with what she described as a weird sick feeling. It was overpowering. In her mind's eye, she saw clearly an L-1011 over the Everglades coming in on flight approach to Miami International. It was dark, late at night. She saw the left wing crumble and the fuselage smash into the ground. She heard the cries of the injured. She had to stop work in the cabin and sit down. Two of her friends, flight attendants, immediately came to her side. They asked Doris what was wrong. She told them. She'd had experiences like this before, and they had turned out to be almost totally accurate. Four of her former classmates had been killed at a railroad crossing after she'd foreseen the accident. They asked Doris when this new accident was going to happen. Around the holidays, she told them, closer to New Year's. Is it going to be us? No, Doris said, but it's going to be real close. I think what she was feeling, Kelly, is it's going to be this plane that I'm actually on right now. Right. She regained her composure and was finally able to put it out of her mind. And she completely forgot about it all the way up until December 29th in 1972. What had happened is when this plane came in from Tampa, the crew that was supposed to be waiting there for them was running late. I think they were on a delayed flight or something. So they were going to just go ahead and keep this crew on and have them as standby. So they were all on the plane ready to go when the other stewardesses showed up and said, no, we're here, we're fine. And I guess I should say flight attendants is what they call them now. And we're ready to go. So then they get off the plane. So Doris had actually been on this flight that's going to go down and then got off the plane. So I just wanted to share that just to kind of set this up. We've already had something unexplained and spiritual happen in connection to Flight 401. We've had a premonition. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. One of the passengers on board was Joan Eskow. She and her husband Jerry had been invited to spend New Year's on a friend's yacht. Jerry's business was in the throes of bankruptcy, so he sent Joan on ahead of him. He convinced her that it would be better for her to fly without him because of something they had discussed in the past. If they both went down in a plane, who would care for their children? Can you imagine if every couple thought that? (laughs) You'd never fly together. There was also Gustavo and Ziomaro Casado, who were flying to Miami to share their new baby girl with family members. There was Gerald Solomon, who was a buyer for Gimbals and on his way to visit his girlfriend and an old college roommate. In first class sat Edward Ulrich and Sandra Burt. Ed had proposed to Sandra on the flight, producing a diamond ring from his pocket, and they asked the flight attendants for some champagne to celebrate. Joseph Popson was returning home after attending the Modern Language Association Conference in New York. Other passengers included Ethel Jackson, who was a 64-year-old housekeeper and Rose Cashman, who was a New Yorker that boarded the plane wearing a mink coat. Mark Lachey was a college student returning to school. Evelyn DeSalazar managed a Manhattan art gallery, and she'd brought her poodle Tina along with her. The men inside the cockpit were going through their landing protocol checklist, and everything was fine until they got to the landing gear. Engineer Repo looked out his window and informed the pilots that he could not see the nose gear down. The captain tried again and then pulled up out of his descent to see if they could figure out what was wrong with the landing gear. It was 11.34 p.m. and Loft radioed the control tower telling them, Well, uh, tower, this is Eastern 401. It looks like we're gonna have to circle. We don't have a light on our nose gear yet. A light in the cockpit would light up when the gear was engaged, and it was unlit. The cockpit crew became consumed with trying to figure out if the light was faulty or if the landing gear was broken. Engineer Repo checked the light and could not get it to light up. Repo jiggled the light to see if it would come on. Nothing. 
Captain Loft had gotten directions from the tower to circle away from the city after climbing to 2,000 feet, and the plane was now headed towards the Everglades. Passengers started shifting in their seats and glancing out the windows. They noticed that the plane had turned and was leaving the glow of the city lights, and they probably felt like, we're also going back up again. What's happening here? Have you ever been on a flight that the landing gear hasn't come down? Thank goodness, no, but I'm getting a little stressed because we're getting ready to head to California on a plane next week. (laughs) It won't be when this is already released. This will be afterwards, but... Yes. (laughs) Nice timing, babe. Yeah, and I was actually (laughs) flying into Miami when this happened. You know, I always listen for when the landing gear comes down and I didn't hear it coming down. And then I noticed that we were like circling and circling and circling. And I'm like, shouldn't we be going into a descent pattern about now? And why are we just circling and circling around? And then after about 20 minutes of doing that, finally, the pilot comes on. You could hear the landing gear coming down and he goes, we were just having a little trouble with the landing gear, but we're ready to land now. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm glad I didn't know. So I know exactly how these passengers are feeling. First Officer Stockstill messed with the light and replaced it the wrong way, jamming it in the socket. The captain told Repo to go down to the forward avionic bay and see if the gear was down. Crews call this area the hell hole. Ooh, doesn't sound like a good place to hang out. Repo opened the small trap door in the cockpit and climbed down. Meanwhile, Stockstill continued to mess with the jammed light. He'd engaged the autopilot while he did this. The captain and Stockstill continued to mess with the light and discuss the issue. The altitude warning bell chimed once. The pilots ignored it. We are really consumed with what is going on with this light, that you've got two men that are still in the cockpit, and they don't even notice that your stuff is telling you you're getting a little low to the ground. Repo comes up out of the bay and says he can't see the landing gear because it is too dark. The captain flips a switch and tells him to check again. He then returns to helping Stockstill with the indicator light. No one knows for sure, but one of them pushed on a throttle, which disengaged the autopilot. The plane began a descent so slight that no one could tell it was happening. So talk about having a bunch of stuff all coming together at once. And these men supposedly were well rested, although we do know that the main captain, Loft, is just coming off of a flight. But I believe these other two men, Repo and Stockstill, are supposed to be fairly well rested at this point. And I don't know if they just got so used to having the autopilot do things for them that they just were ignoring all of the warnings that were coming out. This is why I'll never be in a car that drives itself. No, no, I think people are crazy (laughs) when they're like, I'll just let the car do its own thing. The last word spoken in the cockpit was this exchange. We did something to the altitude, Stockstill said. Loft. What? Stockstill. We're still at 2000, right? Loft. Hey, what's happening here? The tower tried to radio the plane with no success. A few moments later, another plane informed the tower that they had witnessed an explosion near the ground. The plane initially slid across the sawgrass of the marsh of the Everglades for over a third of a mile. It broke up as it went sliding, ending up in five large parts and lots of pieces. Death and survival came randomly for passengers and crew. 103 people died while 75 survived. It's horrible to think that two burned-out indicator lights, which is what our problem is here, led to Flight 401 crashing. Burned-out indicator lights. The landing gear was locked down just as it needed to be for landing. They were good to go. When the investigation into the crash was finished, it was ruled pilot error led to the tragedy. Two of those who lost their lives in the crash were Flight Engineer Repo and Captain Loft. And as I was reading the book, The Ghost of Flight 401, one other person other than 
of these other airlines that are calling out that they saw an explosion close to the ground, there's a guy who's down in the Everglades who's frogging. And he's got 30 pounds of frogs in his boat. He's getting ready to head on home. And he sees this flash of light above him. And then he sees the explosion. And he's like, oh, my God, what was that? And he was like, I think it was a plane crashing. So he just puts his boat into high gear to get over there. And as he's getting closer and closer, he can hear the screams and the cries of everybody in the dark. All he has is this little, you know, when these frog hunters go out with their little flashlights, they're not real big things. And back in the 70s, you didn't really have big things anyway. Right. Yeah. It's a small boat. It's all he's got. And he is literally the only person there to start helping people. And the problem that you run into is when you're down here in the Everglades, there's some water, mud, and then regular ground. And a lot of this is in water and people are still strapped into their seats. So they're drowning because they can't get out of their seats and they're like head down in the water. There's people who have broken bones so they can't hold themselves above the water. So he's trying to save people as much as he can. And to me, it's just amazing that any of these people lived. Plus, Kelly, when we were talking about this, you mentioned something that a lot of people don't have to worry about if they crash in other places. What is there a lot of in the Everglades? Gators. Yeah. So I know every time I've been to the Everglades, I've seen a lot of alligators. So you've also got them hanging around. Although I would imagine because they they do get fearful of things with this type of impact, they probably tried to head the other direction. Yes. The thing with this, too, is when the plane was breaking up, jet fuel went everywhere. So everybody is covered in jet fuel. And one of the passengers was like really worried. He goes, if anybody lights a match or anything near here, we're all going up. On top of that, I did not know this, but I guess if you crash in a forceful enough way, there is such a blast that goes through, it takes your clothes off. So a lot of these people are like naked and only half dressed because their clothing has just been ripped right off their bodies. There was one guy, all he had was the elastic from his socks still around his ankles. I'd never heard of anything like that. So, of course, you've got this heroic undertaking to try to save all of these people and a miracle that 75 of them did survive. I would imagine that the guy that was out frogging with his little skiff, probably as he's saving people, is wondering why all these people were flying naked, because it wouldn't be something that you would commonly expect to happen in an impact like this. No, I would have been the same way because when I had read that, I'm like, what? I didn't even know that that was such a thing that could happen to you. You would think if you had a powerful enough crash that would take people's clothes right off that it would just kill everybody. True. Non-structural parts of Flight 401 were still usable and Eastern Airlines made the decision to salvage the parts and use them on other L-1011s. The galley ovens were a couple of those items. And that is when the stories began that perhaps the spirits of the engineer and the captain had not moved on into the afterlife. One of the first tales came from an Eastern Airlines vice president who was taking a flight in 1973 to Miami. This is an Eastern Airlines vice president. And we're going to get a ghost story. And that's what I love about this is that the guy who wrote this book, John G. Fuller, he didn't believe in ghosts. And the whole reason he even started looking into this is because he was hearing this story that was going around among all the different airlines. Everybody knew this story. And Kelly, we know when it comes to urban legends and such, it's like playing that game telephone and the story changes by the time you get to the end of the circle. You know, one person starts the story and it changes a little as it goes. He was like, this story does not change. People are all having the same experiences. 
They don't change the airline. It's not like, well, now that's a United airline or an American airline. It was always Eastern. It was always Flight 401. And he's like, this story is sticking to the facts. There must be some truth to it. And then when he started asking around, there were a ton of stories people were telling him, but they didn't want their names to be attached to it, which is always a good indicator that you're getting a real thing because they don't want people to think they're crazy. Exactly. Because the stories we're going to share sound crazy. As a VIP, he was allowed to board the plane early, and he did so alone. He noticed a man in full captain dress was seated in the plane, so he walked over to him for a visit. As the two men talked, the executive realized he was talking to Captain Loft. At that moment, the captain disappeared. The executive ran off of the plane in terror and insisted that the plane be checked for any issues as he thought the ghost represented a bad omen. I would think the same thing, and this is just incredible to me. It's not like he just looks up and glances and sees a pilot sitting in the cockpit or at the back of the plane. He actually talked to him and then is like, wait a minute, I know this guy. On another flight, a crew boarded the plane before the passengers and were surprised to see another captain on the plane. They chatted with him for a minute and then he disappeared before their very eyes. The flight was immediately canceled as the crew was stricken with terror. A flight engineer boarded an L-1011 to do his pre-flight check and found engineer Repo sitting in his seat. The apparition informed him that he had already done the pre-flight check before disappearing. Repo was seen again by a captain as he was checking his flight instrument panel. The outline of Repo's face appeared before him and he heard a voice tell him that they would never let anything happen to another L-1011 again, specifically using the pronoun we, meaning that Repo and Loft must be in contact with each other in the afterlife. I mean, that's what I would assume. One flight attendant recounts her experience with one of the dead crew of Flight 401. It was in late February 1973, about two months after the crash. I was in the lower galley. I felt this presence there. It was eerie. I know it sounds ridiculous, and it's really impossible to describe. There was definitely a presence there, even though I didn't see anyone, as some of my friends did later. The temperature of the whole galley literally became freezing. I'll never forget it. A crew was eating their meal in the cockpit as they cruised at 39,000 feet when they heard a knocking on the hellhole door. They ignored it, not wanting to see what was on the other side. They had heard the haunting stories. They finally gave in as the knocking became incessant. Sure enough, the ghost of Repo was on the other side. Another story talks about a flight attendant who was in the lower galley of the Trijet. She was working down there doing her duties, and she happened to glance into the glass window of one of the ovens or meal heating units. There looking out at her, or maybe it was a reflection, was the face of the flight engineer that had lost his life, Repo. The flight attendant was really startled by this, obviously, having somebody looking out at you from the oven. So she goes up topside, and she asks another flight attendant to go below and see if she sees this face in the oven door. That flight attendant goes down there, and sure enough, she sees the same thing. So then they go to the flight engineer of that flight and they asked him to go down into the galley and have a look. He goes down and he not only saw this apparition, but he talked to the vision, which told him, watch out for fire on this airplane. Shortly thereafter, that airplane, which was number 318, was in Mexico City when a problem developed in one of its three engines. The flight crew asked for and was given permission to make a two-engine ferry flight to the airline's maintenance base for an engine change. So they're in Mexico City. They're like, we need to head over to flight repair place just with a flight crew to get it there. And we're going to do it with only two engines. So they've had to shut down that third engine. They're just going to do it with two. 
On takeoff from Mexico City's airport, nearly a mile and a half above sea level, a fire developed in one of the Jumbo's two remaining engines. The engine had to be shut down, and it was. And it was really only through the flight crew's expertise in handling the big jet that they were able to land it. So when you had that executive who was on board thinking that it was a bad omen, maybe it wasn't necessarily a bad omen, but it was a warning. It does seem like they're coming out and trying to warn people. Now, it's not just these crews who are seeing these two ghosts. Catering company employees and passengers have also had scary interactions. One catering crew came screaming off of a plane claiming that Repo was in the forward galley and that he had disappeared. A passenger noticed that a man dressed in a flight suit was sitting across the aisle from her and that he looked very ill. She called a flight attendant over and just as the attendant was about to ask him if he was okay, he disappeared. The women identified the man as Engineer Repo. There were these two planes that were sitting next to each other in Phoenix, Arizona, and there was a captain who was in a Boeing 727 named Captain Morgan, and he looks over, and next to him he has an L-1011, and he notices that there's a lot of police cars that have now surrounded the airplane, and he's wondering what's going on. They had a 45-minute wait before their flight was going to continue, so their crew deplaned, and he went over to the scene to find out what was going on. There he discovered that the L-1011 was on a continuing through flight with several stops en route, and a woman in the coach section who had been perfectly quiet and undisturbed through the flight up until the time the plane approached Phoenix suddenly had begun screaming, and she said that a man had suddenly appeared in a seat near her. She had been looking directly at the seat. The man had not walked up to it, she claimed. He just suddenly came into being right next to her. Then he had disappeared the minute she started screaming. The cabin crew could not quiet her down and finally had to call the police, she became so hysterical that they had to take her off in a straitjacket. Oh, my word. Obviously, some of these experiences are really terrifying people. No kidding. The reports by so many trustworthy people caused the Flight Safety Foundation to issue the following statement. This is the Flight Safety Foundation. The reports were given by experienced and trustworthy pilots and crew. We consider them significant. So this is going out in their booklets. That's just amazing to me. It's pretty incredible. That's how you know that there is truth to all of this. Eastern Airlines tried to stifle the stories and called them rumors. They told employees to stop talking about sightings, but it would seem that the executives were true believers because they eventually ordered that any parts from Flight 401 be removed from any planes in which they were installed. The sightings of the captain and engineer stopped after that. Despite that, no other crash ever occurred with an Eastern Airlines L-1011. So was it Captain Loft and Engineer Repo keeping the plane safe? Was this their penance for their actions causing the crash of Flight 401? Did these ghosts have an attachment to Flight 401 parts? Did the ghosts of these two men haunt aircrafts in the 1970s? That is for you to decide. Even though it was kind of scary for some of these people, it seems like they were actually just trying to be helpful. I absolutely think so. It was almost like they were having to pay some kind of penance for perhaps their mistake and not paying attention to what was going on around them. Right. Or they just felt that duty to do so. Exactly. And it also teaches us maybe don't rely so much on autopilot. Remember that you still have to do things mechanically, physically yourself. We want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you have any feedback you'd like to send us, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger.
We want to thank Colleen Golden for your one-time donation. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher.